Before we get into the intro today, I have to tell you guys about this awesome chance to save some money on the upcoming Pacific Bitcoin Festival happening on October 5th and 6th out in Los Angeles. If you click the link below in the show notes, you get a 21% discount on the event tickets. And the best part is you don't even have to worry about remembering a promo code because the link will automatically apply the discount at checkout. Guys, I have to say that honestly, this might be one of the better events to be going to this year because not only will you be surrounded by people like Lynn Alden, Greg Foss, Preston Pish, etc., but this one is actually one of those affordable events in the space that you can go to where it's not going to cost you thousands of dollars just to get a ticket like some of the other Bitcoin events. So go and click the link below, get your tickets to Pacific Bitcoin, and when you do, please reach out to me. I'd love to hang out with you guys in person. I'd love to get a real-life happy hour set up to chat and hang out with you guys more. So I hope that I can see you guys there. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's release of the Hashrate Happy Hour podcast. We have another really, really special episode. Today, I am joined by both Evan Neal and A.G. Springer of ERCOT. We spent some time talking through who ERCOT is, the scale of the grid compared to the total capacity of Bitcoin mining that they are actually aware of, and we wrap up the conversation with some of the potential challenges that are presented by this much flexible load on the grid system. This is an absolutely phenomenal perspective, completely removed from the Bitcoin mining industry, to hear about how ERCOT is directly impacted by these large flexible loads such as Bitcoin mining. Today's podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, the Texas Blockchain Council, a Bitcoin-first, nonprofit industry organization working to make Texas the jurisdiction of choice for Bitcoin mining and blockchain innovation. They will be hosting North America's premier policy conference for Bitcoin and the digital asset ecosystem on November 15th through 17th in Fort Worth, Texas. For more information, please visit their website at texasblockchaincouncil.org. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Like I said in the introduction, this is a super exciting episode. I have A.G. Springer and Neil, excuse me, Evan Neil, sorry, guys, uh, with ERCOT on to to talk all things power and uh, the, the Texas grid. So, guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I can state it you know, enough that how excited I am to, to have this discussion with you guys. I, I really appreciate you guys carving out some time. It's a Friday. It's the afternoon. Uh, we're we're going to nerd out over all things uh, large load. So appreciate it, guys. You know, most episodes, I like to have the guests, you know, kind of walk through their backgrounds. I, I think that that helps paint just a, a nice backdrop for for the rest of the discussion. Uh I I would love to get your guys' backgrounds and, you know, maybe AG, we, we start with you and walk us through your background and, and what, you know, fascinates you so much about electricity and what, what brought you to ERCOT and then we can follow up with Evan. Um, yeah, no, thanks again for having us. Um, so, yeah, my name is AG Springer and I'll actually maybe start by answering your first, your, your last question there. Um, you know, what, what draws me to the electricity? Um, I mean, I think there's there's two aspects. The the nerd in me enjoys the problem solving aspect. Uh, really, the power systems are are generally just big puzzles, uh, and solving them is uh, keeping them running is is very satisfying. Um, and then the other piece of it is a, a sort of public good benefit of you know reliable electricity, reliable energy. Um, I think is important. Um, you know, for, for society at large. So being able to do something that is uh, really fun for me personally, but also provides a societal good, I think is, uh, is kind of a win-win there. Um, I've been uh, with ERCOT uh, for about 10 years uh, with a, a break in the middle for a couple of years when I was uh, with a renewable developer. Um, I started as an engineer providing real-time support to the ERCOT control room. Um, so doing things like reliability studies, uh, analysis when we had grid events, um, and just supporting the control room operators with whatever they needed to maintain grid reliability. That also included uh, things like development of control room displays to help improve their awareness of the system. 
Um, I've been an engineer in ERCOT's market analysis and validation team, uh, which looks at you know many of the same issues, but from the market side. Um, so price formation, uh, analyzing market participant behavior, um, and just really making sure that the the market is functioning as intended, which is to promote uh, grid reliability. Um, I've been the supervisor of ERCOT's uh, engineer development program for new engineers entering the company and just starting their careers. Um, and then currently I serve as the manager of large load interconnection, which is a brand new team that is being formed to address uh, the sort of large wave of, of new and large and flexible loads that are connecting to the system for the first time um, that are really uh, bringing a, a large amount of change and some new reliability yeah. challenges I think we'll talk some more about. So uh, we're starting up a, a new, completely new team to address those challenges. And uh, uh, that's probably a good segue to, to Evan, who is, is just joining our team. Sure. Yeah. Um, so let's see. I'm pretty new out of college. So I graduated in 2020 uh, from Duke University. I studied mechanical engineering there. Uh, and I was really just kind of kind of figure out what I wanted to do, was very interested in like energy, power, wasn't sure if I really wanted to go to the generation side. Um, I had a short stint at an internship at an asset management company in Charlotte's, uh, really enjoyed that. But upon graduating, I just found myself really fascinated with the bulk electric system as a whole, just how intricate a puzzle that is. Uh, and AG kind of alluded to this, but just the engineering challenge to to balance all aspects of that from planning to operations to markets, uh, bringing generation, bringing the load side. It's just uh, one of those unique engineering problems that I think, you know, not many people are lucky enough to work on it from my perspective. Um, so I, I then joined ERCOT in 2020. I actually went through that engineering development program that AG used to be the supervisor of. Uh, so that gave me a good well-rounded experience to start off um, touching on all those different groups from markets to planning to operations. Uh, and from there, then I pivoted over into our resource adequacy team. So I've been there for about two years, um, and resource adequacy is essentially uh, a derivative of, of the planning department. Uh, and you're looking at, you know, into the future, whether or not supply is going to meet demand, and you're doing a bunch of studies related to that. Um, and around the same time, I kind of got interested in, in Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining uh, and recognized it kind of as a similar, you know, very large, intricate puzzle with with all, all the terms that, that come together there yeah. uh, and began to sort of recognize, you know, that relationship between Bitcoin mining and then the energy space. Um, and it just so happened to line up around when the China ban happened. I believe that was 2021. And we started seeing miners move to, to Texas and to ERCOT that things kind of started to gain traction here. And so I took that opportunity to really jump on that. Uh, worked on any project I could, did, uh, did a bunch of informational sessions within the company on that, um, and just trying to be as involved as I could as possible. And so now AG came back to ERCOT and he's heading up this, this new large load team. And uh, I'll actually be the, the first FTE working under him. So that'll be official next week. So there's oh, your transition. I, uh... <laughs> I'm just looking forward to not being the only only person full-time dealing with this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, all right, thank you guys. That so again, that it's super helpful to just paint that that backdrop. Um, all right, so I have to ask Ag when Evan started to bring up things like Bitcoin mining as a large flexible load. What what were your first thoughts to that? Maybe just even even on top of that, were you aware of Bitcoin? Did you know what Bitcoin mining was? Was that on your radar? Well, it certainly was uh, by the time I came back um, yeah, and started this particular role. But I'll just you know freely admit that Evan's level of knowledge is probably an order of magnitude uh, greater than mine. Um, you know, I, I think I've become much more familiar with the concept of you know proof of work and you know how the the sort of rudimentary mechanics of Bitcoin mining, but you know. For, for me as an electricity nerd, I think, uh, you know, m m a lot of my focus and expertise is much more on how they impact and interact with the grid. And it, it's really, you know, important to understand kind of what's going on behind 
the electricity meter, but I, you know, I, I'm certainly not an expert. Oh, that, no, I, that's okay. I'm not an expert either. It's, uh, it's, a, it's still a very nascent industry in, in general. Um, I'd be curious though, was there like a, a moment where it clicked? Was it like when you were listening to the functionality of Bitcoin mining where you're like, wow, that may be a pretty like good tool for the grid? Or did you have any moment like that or anything like that at all? Well, I mean, I you know, I think it's it's clear that the the nature of Bitcoin mining can be flexible because it doesn't really have any intermediate product. Um so I think, you know, there, there's, I, I think there's a lot of evidence that flexible loads in general are going to become an important tool um, for the management of the grid over the next 10 years. I, you know, it's a really a kind of a transformational period. And so to the extent that, that Bitcoin mining can fit into those parameters and i think we're we'll probably talk about them you know yes. in our during our conversation <laughs> uh you know i i think that that does have the potential to be an asset to to grid operation and reliability if it's if it's done in a coordinated way um so yeah i mean there's certainly a recognition that that bitcoin has that potential i wouldn't say it's the only only type of load that does okay so. yeah uh and i i agree uh, 100% wholeheartedly on that last statement that it's not the only thing. Um, all right. So Evan, I got to scratch this itch a little bit more. When you first were like, Hey, Bitcoin, Bitcoin mining, and then bringing it through with, with ERCOT, how, how was it initially received? And then, I mean, obviously here we are, we're talking about it. You guys are looking at it. it just got, how was it in the beginning? And then how did you get to where we are today? with the discussion. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, um, to kind of build off what AG said, and, and this kind of predated before he came back, um, we actually had a separate engineer who was really tracking all of these projects that were just kind of popping up all over Texas. And I was just kind of like, oh, 100 megawatts here, 100 megawatts there. And eventually it's like, oh, we have, you know, a fairly good sized city, essentially, that wants to connect in under two years. This doesn't really fit in with our traditional planning processes. We don't really know how this load's going to behave. Um, so, frankly, it kind of raised some some alarms, right? Yeah, I can um, imagine. All that, <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and you saw that within the ERCOT uh, stakeholder system. So they formed a task force called the Large Flexible Load Task Force, uh, and a bunch of market participants basically got together um, with ERCOT and we're like, okay, guys, so. Here are all the issues, problems, uh, potential things we could run into that we basically just need to come up with solutions for. Because, um, you know, it's, it's our duty to serve the load. We're not gatekeeping the grid by any means. It's just, a like we mentioned before, another engineering challenge that was presented to us. Um, and so that process is, is still being worked on today, right? Um, but I think since then to now, uh, there's been a lot of education on both sides. Um, we've had these loads on the system for longer. So we've been able to get more observational data under our belt. Um, we're learning more on how they behave in terms of their flexibility, what signals they respond to. Um, so it's, it's a continuous, you know, learning situation. I think it's a lot of back and forth where it's like, oh, this would be a really cool potential for it, at least from my perspective. And then it's like, oh, well, here's this problem that we haven't really considered yet that we need to, to tackle to make sure everything, you know, comes together and it's coordinated and we maintain reliability. I thank you um, for, for going a little deeper on that formula. Like I said, it's, it's an itch I had to scratch. I'm coming from, I came from 3M. Um, and one of the things I had tried to, to kick around internally was, you know, an initiative of sorts around the the Bitcoin mining ecosystem, and and I ran into a little bit more of a of a barrier there than than you did. So I, I, again, it's kind of a, an itch I wanted to scratch because I I am just curious on how more established, more traditional you know agencies and groups are are starting to come around to this this crazy thing called Bitcoin mining. So thank you, appreciate that. Um, I think it would be a shame if we did not. If I did not ask the question, 
Who is ERCOT? What does ERCOT do? How are you doing it? Um, I'm up in Minnesota. We're we're a totally different grid system than ERCOT. So please help me get a better understanding of this. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you you already alluded to a little bit of the first part. You know that. Um, so te- Texas is uh, uh, the ERCOT grid is essentially the Texas grid. It doesn't quite cover all of Texas. Um, there's a little bit in the east and and El Paso in the west that are part of different interconnections. But for the majority of Texas's landmass and customers are a separate electric grid from the rest of the United States. And ERCOT is the grid operator for that grid. Um, so what what does that really mean? Yeah. It's uh, Our official title is the independent system operator. So you can kind of think of us like a air traffic controller, but for electricity. So just like the air traffic controller doesn't own any planes or airports or runways, but it has the bird's eye view of the whole system and make sure everything runs reliably. Uh, ERCOT has the same function for electricity in the state of Texas. We don't operate generators. Uh, we don't own generators. We don't uh, own transmission lines. We don't uh, directly serve customers. But we have a bird's eye view of the whole thing, and we kind of perform some core reliability functions. So we we operate the system day to day from our control room um, because there you know a number of different companies operate different pieces of the system. So you need an entity that's coordinating everything and making it making sure it operates reliably. We also operate the energy market. Um, now the energy markets are structured to promote reliability, and ERCOT is the operator of the market, not a participant in the market. And so, you know, we we again we kind of function as that bird's eye view, honest broker that doesn't have a stake in it. Um, we ensure that uh, there's open access to the transmission system, um, and we also kind of facilitate a competitive retail market. So, you know. It, it, at a very high level, we're we're kind of you know ma- we're maintaining the reliability of the whole system by you know ensure, ensuring an even playing field and uh, functioning as that entity that is dedicated towards uh, just maintaining reliability. Okay, um, I think another maybe another point, and I'll I think we can get to it through a question: Is you guys are not setting power rates you're not setting rate structures you guys and i ask that because again totally different grid system up here on on MISO Mm -hmm. you know we've got i'm in minnesota i've got the minnesota utilities public utilities commission where their mandate is to protect me the consumer from you know mana monopolies basically of the the utilities so that's not you guys right no, um, there. Uh, ERCOT operates the wholesale electricity market, but then uh, we we do not set retail rates, uh, and we don't have direct relationships with you know individual customers either. Okay, um, when you say wholesale, maybe just help me understand that. Sure. So um, the the wholesale market essentially is the the portion that would would function between the sale of energy from uh, the generators that are connected to the transmission system, the transmission of energy across the transmission system, and then the purchase of energy by what are called load serving entities. Um, and those are entities that are purchasing power at a wholesale rate and then reselling them to individual customers or, or blocks of individual customers. Um, through what are called retail electric providers, and those would be the entities that would be um, your your local utility, or um, you know, it, it, there are portions of Texas that are de- deregulated and have uh, uh, electricity competition uh, for individual customers. So you can you can purchase an electricity plan kind of like you can a cell phone plan in some areas of the state. Um, and then other areas uh, are still, you know, municipal or co-op, and those are, are much more the the traditional regulated sure. rates. Okay, um, 
Thank you. I, I appreciate that. You know, some some I'm sure there will be plenty more rudimentary questions coming. Just as long as it's just as long as you're not asking me to, to explain Bitcoin in too much detail, I think. Uh, yeah, no, that's all good. Um, let's maybe talk about like the scale of Urkai, because, again, you guys are I mean, the state of Texas is the, the scale of the size of the state is is alarming. So I, I'd actually be curious. Do you guys know? Like, what's the size of your total system? And, you know, maybe maybe just to compare that to, to some of the other states or grids. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I can certainly give you some some kind of quick facts about our system. So we serve about 90 uh, percent of Texas's electric load um, and about 75 percent of Texas's land mass. So, you know, there's there's you know some good portions out in West Texas that aren't in ERCOT's region, but they're also very sparsely populated. Um, our, we've been setting summer peak records all summer. So uh, uh, our, our most recent peak was on August 10th, and it was about 85,000 megawatts. Cool. Um, and to give you some sense of context, uh, last year's peak load was about 80,500 megawatts. So we've We've added almost 5,000 megawatts on last year's record uh, just this summer, which both gives you a sense of how much the, the state is growing and, and how hot it has been wow. here this summer. Um, so, you know, in terms of just the physical size, too, it's we've got about uh, 52,000 miles of transmission lines crisscrossing the state. And uh, about 1,100 generating units are connected, you know, and some of those are quite small. Other those, you know, range up to a big nuclear plant and everything in between. So it's it's a it's you know relative to the rest of the United States, there's you know both the eastern interconnection and then the western interconnection, which are obviously much larger systems because they cover states in there. Yeah, um, you know, the eastern interconnection runs right runs from the east coast basically through the Dakotas. And then the Western interconnection goes, you know, from there on West and then Texas is a third grid. So, you know, it, it, it really gives you a sense of scale there that, you know, Texas is actually quite small relative but it's one to those state. other grids. And it's it's only one state. But, you know, the, the fact that it's electrically quite small actually means that, you know, issues like like the addition of these larger loads, um, they they become operating challenges here first because the grid is smaller. So, you know, if we start adding thousands of megawatts of new large loads relative to the size of the grid, that that's actually a fairly significant fraction. And, you know, in, in within another state, it might be, but because that state is interconnected with many other states, uh, it, it's not as noticeable mm-hmm early on. Whereas in ERCOT, we really start to have to grapple with those, those reliability challenges. Sure. You know, sure. Pretty um, okay. I appreciate the scale on that. And maybe to, to further add like an understanding of the scale, do you happen to have figures on the visible amounts of Bitcoin mining on your system? Like as, as far as like a, a total number of megawatts on the, on the system? Yeah. Um, you know, so, one thing to clarify there, right, is is ERCOT as an entity doesn't have any visibility into what the load is actually doing with their power, right? We just see an entity interconnecting for X amount of megawatts. And, you know, maybe we know if it's like commercial, industrial, residential, that kind of thing. But whether or not it's going to be a Bitcoin mining load is, is really unknown to us. Um, unless, you know, maybe the customer reaches out directly and talks to us through this large load interconnection process, um, or, you know, it's pretty easy to read the news and and see a a huge load going up in whatever County you can connect the dots. Um, so what, what we do is, is we don't have tracking of Bitcoin mining specifically. Uh, we just have tracking of of large loads. And so currently that is going to be a load that is going to plan to be greater than 75 megawatts interconnect within a span of, of two years or less. Um, so that definitely fits the bill for Bitcoin miners, but it's not all Bitcoin miners. You have to consider that Bitcoin miners might be, you know, anywhere below that. So we, we're not going to have visibility on that. But in terms of, of a load quantity that we've approved for large loads coming on is roughly th- just under three gigawatts right now. Oh, wow. So, so 3000 megawatts. Um, 
Yes, I mean, so it's a considerable amount. And keep in mind, that's the amount that we've approved to connect. It's not the amount that we've seen. Um, the amount that we've seen, we've seen a non-coincident peak. So this is just taking each individual load's peak amount and then summing all that up. Um, that is roughly 2,300 megawatts as of today. Yeah, and I would add that that is the amount that has interconnected or been approved to interconnect since January of uh, 2022. And so, it you know, if you look at that 2,900 megawatts or just, just slightly less than three gigawatts, that that represents about three and a half percent of that overall summer peak record that I just mentioned that we hit last week. So, you know, that's to to add three and a half percent to your load in a year and a half. I mean, that's a that's a pretty uh-huh. fast ramp up of, of load. That oh, absolutely. And I think it's really important to to highlight that that piece, Evan, where, you know, you you guys don't have the ability to go in and say, okay, these electrons are going into a Bitcoin miner. I think that's really important because I think the narrative out there is like, well, well, ERCOT knows exactly how much Bitcoin mining is on their grid and all you got to do is call them up and ask. No, it's it's not quite that way at all. So I appreciate that, Evan. Um, let's maybe yep. go a little bit deeper on some of your guys' programs um, you guys do have a couple different programs, things like demand response, firm fuel supply, QSE, renewable credits. Well, maybe, maybe in that one, I'm, you know, a little fuzzy on that one. So please, you know, walk me through, you know, in whatever fashion you feel like some of those programs. Yeah. I mean, so we can start with demand response, right? So we're talking about yep. Bitcoin miners. That's, that's the big one. Um, and so demand response is more of a, a broad term, right? You know, there isn't like an ERCOT demand response program. There are programs that ERCOT has that are you know, what you would call demand response if you're going to describe it. Um, and so this can range from anything from ancillary services to this thing called 4CP, which stands for uh, Four Coincident Peaks. And, and that's actually not an ERCOT thing. That's a, a public utility commission thing. It's a it's basically a way for them to set mm-hmm. their, their rate structure there. Um, so all, all of ERCOT really, we just calculate the numbers and pass it on to the PUC. And then that is entirely their their thing. Um, but it affects Bitcoin miners all the same. Um, and then you just have your basic price responsive action, right? These guys are responding to wholesale market prices. So um, they're going to do what's in their best economic interest, right? So um, we can start with uh, ancillary services. Okay, let's let's ERS. Um, yeah, so ERS is uh, as I guess you could say a fourth one. You kind of think it's similar to an ancillary service. It's it's really it's the emergency uh, response service. Yeah, right. Um, and so this is a, a contractual service that ERCOT has. There's a X amount of budget set aside, and ERCOT basically calculates for each hour of the year how much of this service you need. And it's essentially in the case of emergencies. It's uh, an amount of load or generation set aside that ERCOT can call on, right? So this is uh, once we hit an advisory, so it, it's called the Physical Response Capability PRC, which uh, high level you can think of is like a, a measure of the grid's sure. health, right? You want to keep the PRC at a healthy level. Um, so once that drops below 3,000, our operators are able to call on that um, at their discretion, right? So these pre-contracted um, companies, it could be small generators, small loads, Bitcoin mines, LFLs, whatever. Uh, they'll call on them and say, hey, we're deploying ERS at this time. And that's when they'll shut off their load, turn on their emergency generator, whatever they were contracted for. Um, and so that that is a paid service, right? That is competitively procured. So market participants will bid to provide that service. And there will be a clearing price on that. So it will, it'll take the, the lowest bidders. Um, yeah, and I think it's important to really emphasize there that that's, that's open to any load that, I mean, all of these services are open to any load that can demonstrate that they meet the qualification requirements. It has nothing to do with how they're in using their, their end-use electricity. It's, it's really, um, you know, and ERS is, is really the most accessible um, uh, kind of program to to loads and ter- that wish to you know provide a service to the grid and, and okay. And you you mentioned that there there are some things they have to do to qualify for it. Um, 
what what are what are those? Um, yeah, so I mean, when we talk about qualification, I think that is more going to apply towards ancillary services. Mm-hmm. There are qualifications for ERS, but it is uh, it's much less stringent, right? Um, you really just kind of need a meter and a queasy um, for the most part. Um, so when we're talking about ancillary services, these yeah. are less of an emergency tool for ERCOT and okay. more of a reliability tool. So you have a couple of them. So um, the main ones that that LFLs are participating in is going to be your responsive reserve service. So that's your RRS. It's going to be your non-spin reserve service. And then there's going to be your ERCOT contingency reserve service, so ECRS. And these are all basically different variations of having capacity set aside. So this could be capacity from a load or generator um, for ERCOT operators to basically call upon when the situation's right. So there's, you know, operating guides that go deep into the specifications on when things can be dispatched. Um, but essentially you can think of these as tools to, you know, primarily deal with, with frequency mm-hmm. issues, right? So if you look at RRS, for example, if you have something like a nuclear unit trip off, you just lost a considerable amount of megawatts on the system. And you're going to need to balance that out in some way. So that would be an example of where an operator could dispatch RRS or in this case ECRS. And that could either bring more generation online to replace what was lost. Or you would then do, you know, the opposite side of the equation is take load off to match Um, what generation was missing. Yeah. Um, Sorry to jump in. Yeah, go ahead. Which is more preferred? Uh, Like either... uh, like a peaker plant spinning up or a load coming off? What, is there a pre- preference on that? So the, the preference is, you know, the responsibility of ERCOT is to procure these services at the lowest cost. So um, there is a limit in the ERCOT protocols on how much can, how much of these services can come from load. But beyond that, it's, it's just whichever is the most economical bids, those are the ones that clear the market and are awarded the responsibility to provide the service. So um, we the, the services are procured in the day ahead market. So there's a competitive bidding process. The lowest bids are the ones that clear. And then those uh, either loads or generators that were awarded have a responsibility when we get to the, the awarded time period in the next operating day they have the responsibility to reserve that capacity to provide okay. the service um i guess the the next question that comes to mind then is like as far as who you guys might be seeing is becoming more and more competitive on that are you seeing a particular actor i guess what i'm asking i'll just ask it outright are you seeing bitcoin mining operators becoming the most competitive on that type of service or or no so, I mean, it, it's really hard to say who's the most competitive in that service, right? Because you have you have a lot of players, right? Any generation that can provide it, any different type of load that can provide it. Um, but you have to kind of back up a step and say, you know, who actually can provide these services? Mm-hmm. You know, there is a qualification process. And based on those three that I said, so RRS, non-spin, and ECRS, there are different levels of qualification you have to go through uh, in terms of flexibility, you know, how much you control your load. Um, being able to provide primary frequency response is a big one. And so essentially, you know, being able to do these things is what you'd qualify as is called a load resource. And then there are two different categories of load resources. There is your uh, non-controllable load resource, which you can just kind of think about a, a chunk load that's got an under frequency relay system, right? So they can just turn it off and on. And then your controllable load resource. And this would be, you know, your traditional flexible load that can ramp up and down to a mm-hmm. signal. Okay. And, you know, back to how large flexible loads would come and impact that, you know, granted they're able to qualify for those. They could, you know, just bid in to these programs. And if you're a load and let's just take Bitcoin mining, for example, and you have, um, you know, your, your way to make money through mining, right, of consuming power. Um, you just kind of have to play the economics there to decide, you know, whether or not you want an ancillary service obligation to, I mean, cause that means you have to be online. You have yeah. to be consuming energy to be available to ramp down, to provide that service if needed. So, um, 
there are you know different times of the day depending on power prices when maybe bitcoin miners would want to or, or not want to um but in general if you think about what it would cost them to provide the ancillary service most of the time it's it's going to be nothing right they want to stay online granted that they think power prices are going to stay below their strike price um and it doesn't really cost them anything extra to have an obligation to stay online so you would think in that situation that they would bid zero dollars mm-hmm. to provide that service and so anytime that you have uh, an industry coming in and keep in mind it's not just bitcoin miners it could be other people as well um if you're just bidding zero into that service you're effectively lowering the clearing price for that service right so you can see that and i think that's what you would just see most uh in in these sorts of markets as they mature right and you get uh technology coming under the grid that just just kind yeah. of matches up with that service um you're just kind of going to see a more competitive that, market so in general this this just shows that my level of understanding of it all it's is that a is that a benefit to either the citizens or or the grid like that type of activity is that is that a net benefit um well if if it's going to clear at a lower price then in theory you do have yeah. less cost on consumers right Okay. I, and again, I, I was just curious. I mean, it's, I, uh, you know, I, I'll probably bug you guys for like a follow-up meeting off the podcast just to, to continue my education on all of this. Again, it's, this is quite a bit different and quite a bit more in depth than, than I'm used to. So I might, I might be a little over my head on yeah, this and, a little bit. Well, it, yeah, I mean, it, you know, if we could explain the intricacies of, of the ancillary service market structure and in a, in an hour podcast, we <laughs> probably be, <laughs> we would probably be considered wizards. Um, but, you know, I, I just want to emphasize one other thing that, that Evan said, you know, that the, it, that lowering the cost of procuring ancillary services is that's assuming that the Bitcoin, you know, if, if there are Bitcoin miners entering the bidding pool that they're bidding at a lower price than it would otherwise have cleared at. So it's, it's not a guarantee that it, their participation would lower um, the clearing price. And, you know, I, I also just want to emphasize again that because ERCOT doesn't have visibility yep. into the types of customers that are bidding in that, you know, we really don't have a way to say that, you know, they're, that we're seeing a bunch more Bitcoin miners or, or not, or any other type of loader generator bidding in it's um, you know, it, it, we have a little bit more visibility into the generator types, but for load, it's really how big is the load? How much is it bidding in and how much is it willing to bid in to provide, you know, how many megawatts and then um, does it meet the qualifications that that's kind of the extent that, that we have uh, visibility there. So, you know, with, with this being, you know, one of the halves of the show that I'm focused on is the Bitcoin mining component to all this. So I'd love to hear, you know, what what are some of the ways that you guys are interacting with Bitcoin miners? Um, and you can take that in any direction you want, but I'd love to hear like what what kind of interactions are you having? Has that gotten to become more? Maybe just expand on that. Yeah, and I mean, frankly, I think we can you know touch on this topic and still kind of continue on the one we were just talking about because um, you know we did mention ancillary services as being a way to provide demand response, but we didn't touch on the four CP or just the passive price responsive nature either. And so, um, you know, us at ERCOT, this introduces a, a peculiar challenge where we now need to basically enhance all of our forecasting capabilities because we have these two other signals that aren't direct, you know, derivatives of the ERCOT market per se, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Where we now need to forecast for for our load forecast to maintain reliability. So um, for price responsiveness, you know, there has been an effort um, on our part and also some of the miners have reached out to us to basically just open that communication channel and be like, hey, we're interested in your business model in terms of how that's going to impact your electricity consumption. Can you kind of just explain to us, you know, what type of miners you're using, how price responsive you're going to be, plan on doing ancillary services or not? Um, you know, what is the ramping capabilities of your site, et cetera? 
Um, so we have conversations that way uh, just to kind of gauge how they're going to behave on, on a day-to-day basis for forecasting metrics. Um, and as well as for CP, you know, we, we want to understand how they're going to respond to that. And, and that, as I mentioned, was the PUC program, which is essentially they – uh, their transmission costs for the next year will be based on their consumption for the peaks yep. for the four summer months. So, yep. you know, uh, June, July, August, September, whatever that peak 15 minute interval is, whatever their consumption, then that's what they get charged based off. So they don't want to be online then essentially. Um, and they'll have different strategies of doing that. You know, it introduces some, some game theory there, right. Where, Oh, you know, that number we cited, almost mm-hmm. three gigs, two, two to three gigs of mining load, the last miner to turn off might be the peak setter. So, you know, it, it's not as easy as just turning off on that one 15 minute interval. You got to kind of oh, interesting. play yeah. it out with everyone else. So, um, yeah, so, so, you know, there's communication there just to better understand how, how they behave and how we can incorporate that into a forecast. Um, and then there's also some communication on the interconnection side. And I think AG would be a good person to talk about that. Yeah, uh, we you know before we um, uh, move off of that, you know, I, I one thing I would would also add to the the point Evan was making about um, passive price response. In other words, watching uh, wholesale prices uh, uh, and you know making decisions to reduce or increase consumption, um, you know that that really adds. Uh, quite a bit of uncertainty into reliable operations day to day, you know, because we we don't necessarily know which loads are Bitcoin mining loads, and we don't necessarily know what their strike price is. We we have a lot of uncertainty, and you know these are these are very large loads relative to the system, and certainly relative to wherever they're located. Um, that can come on or off the system yeah. in short amounts of time. Um, you know, that, that presents uh, quite a bit of risk for, especially for maintaining the stability of the system. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it potentially could, could drive us to have to, uh, you know, buy more ancillary services. Uh, you know, so we talked about ways in which, uh, new entrance to that market might lower cost. Having to buy more of it is going to raise costs. So that's you know there there's a, sort of a growing reliability risk there that we so see. maybe um, yeah. You know, and and, and sorry inter- to jump in, just yeah, maybe to to clarify for, again for myself is so what what you're saying is that the fact that these operators are so price responsive to the power and to the price of Bitcoin that you don't know when they're going to be dropping load. And your job is to balance the grid, meaning you need to maintain 60 hertz on the grid at all yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And, you know, and I, I think it's really important to emphasize that price responsiveness in and of itself is not necessarily good or bad for reliability. If a load wishes to be price responsive and is willing to do so in a way that is coordinated with the needs of the grid, that can be really beneficial because it becomes a tool that's sort of a mirror of generation for helping to maintain balance and maintain load and demand imbalance. And um, we haven't really touched on it, but we have uh, a type of load resource that a load could qualify and, and register as, which is called a controllable load resource. And, uh, you know, if that load chooses to, they can qualify and participate in the economic dispatch of the system, same as a generator. And in that kind of a situation, a controllable load resource will be incorporated into all the bids from generators. So it's free, you know, basically it's part of the entire economic puzzle. So it no longer has to guess when prices spike. It's going to be incorporated into setting the prices and will be dispatched up or down based on its bid to buy curve. In other words, it it feeds the strike price into the economic dispatch and hmm. is dispatched accordingly. Um, 
it's ramp rate, you know, it's ramp rates are accounted for. So it, we no longer have to guess how fast or, you know, the load is going to come on or off. Um, and, and the, you know, controllable load resource is also eligible to participate in the ancillary surface markets. So, you know, from, from ERCOT's perspective, the more, um, flexible load that becomes a controllable load resource, that's really good because it brings those loads in and incorporates them with the other reliability needs of the grid. The more load that is passively responding to price, that that really kind of negatively impacts reliability because now we have to try and guess what they're going to be doing. We have to procure more ancillary services, which means basically like buying more insurance to cover that behavior. Um, it likely means our load forecast is not going to be as accurate. Uh, it just, it, it generates a lot of uncertainty and it, you know, we, we worry about the, the possibility that something like a, a, a generator tripping off for a mechanical failure, triggering a price, a spike in the wholesale electricity price. And then suddenly we see you know, hundreds or thousands of megawatts suddenly come off the grid in mm-hmm. response. And, you know, what what that what we kind of see that as a, a magnification of a reliability event where we had one event, a generator tripping suddenly become uh, an event where, you know, a bunch of load leaves, you know, goes off the system and we don't know where where frequency is going to be at the end of that. So it just, you know, coordination, I think, is the real key to flexible loads becoming a, a tool for reliability rather than I, a, yeah, I, I completely agree that, I mean, and what it sounds like is maybe, maybe just having those discussions about, you know, making, not making sure, but just having the discussions about, you know, having those loads be a part of that versus just competitively bidding. Um, I, I was actually curious and this kind of leads into this a little bit is, you see so much again i live in this bitcoin twitter echo chamber world evan maybe maybe you're there a little bit too <laughs> but what i see a lot of is how awesome the ERCOT grid is for bitcoin mining are you guys seeing almost too much demand for bitcoin mining in the ERCOT grid system maybe that's too broad of a question i don't know but i'm i'm just curious Well, again, you know, I think it's it's important to emphasize that, you know, we don't have uh, direct visibility into the end use of the of the uh, the electricity for these loads. So it's, um, you know, difficult to say what I, I don't even know how I would quantify what is is too much, even if we could say, OK, this number is, is just Bitcoin mining. Um, but. I think it's fair to say we have seen a growth in large loads that are exhibiting price responsive, you know, or other kind of flexible types of behavior. And the vast majority of that has been just as passive price response. So completely uncoordinated with the grids. Some of, some of those loads are, are qualifying for ancillary services and that is a coordinated service, but in terms of just their day-to-day operation, I'd say the majority and the overwhelming majority are responding to prices outside of the economic dispatch. And as that number continues to grow, I think it it, it does represent a reliability okay. risk. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. I, would you mind sharing? So you've kind of touched on it a little bit. Are there other ways that this can maybe start to pivot and become less of a risk? Like, are there ways to interact with these large flexible loads in a, in a slightly different way? Or, and again, you already touched on the one, um, but are, are there others? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, you know, the, that's the primary tool. I mean, I think if, if we could, um, you know, our, our, our preferred solution is for as many of these uh, large loads as possible to become controllable load resources uh, you know, I've already kind of gone through the benefits. It's, you know, their behavior becomes coordinated with the grid. It takes the guesswork for them out of uh, trying to respond to prices because, you know, instead of watching what comes out of the economic dispatch and then making a decision, you 
you feed into the economic dispatch what you would like your decision to be. And then that is incorporated with the overall needs of the system. And if, if, you know, if it's economic for you to stay on, you will be instructed to stay on. If it's, if it's economic for you to shut down based on the price, you'll receive an instruction to, to shut down. And, and that that's a, in my mind, that's a win for everybody because it, it takes the guesswork out of the, the loads, cal, you know, decision-making and it, it provides ERCOT the, the kind of coordination that we need. To I think it also, reliability. you know, helps the, the Bitcoin mining narrative too, because you most, most of the main actors in the space, most of the main companies out there, they want to be a tool. They want to help. They want to be a, a net benefit to the grid that they're on and that they're operating in. So it sounds like, you know, this, this is kind of that. Um, I, I would be curious, maybe this is a question for one of the Bitcoin mining groups. You guys tell me how, how you can answer this question, but I, I'm, I'm kind of wondering is, is maybe, is there resistance to that program based on like, do they think that they can get better pricing in in the real time market? Is that where some of that resistance might be coming from? Well, controllable load resources um, do participate in the real time market. Um, I, I I would not want to speculate on what is driving that decision making. Um, from the task force, we have gotten some feedback that there are some barriers to entry for co- becoming a tr- controllable load resource, and there are proposals that are are you know being discussed in the ERCOT stakeholder process to hopefully eliminate some of those barriers to entry. Um, and you know, I think it's it's our hope that that will entice you know more loads to sign up for that participating in that way. Um, you know, I think it's it's there's a lot of complexity that ERCOT as an organization doesn't have have uh, visibility into into the decision making process. A lot of of these loads are are going through to make those decisions. Um, but you know, certainly from a reliability perspective, we think that that's the best way forward. And um, you know, from a an economic perspective, we think that it it, it should be appealing to do that. Yeah, just, just market efficiency in, in general, mm-hmm. right? And I, I think, Ben, you got to look at the flip side, right? So, you know, AG talked a lot mm-hmm. about the CLR program um, mm-hmm. to maintain reliability through coordination. But, you know, what, what's the alternative there, right? If, if we are faced with a serious problem of very large loads turning off and on very quickly in a somewhat coordinated fashion, you know, you have to basically limit that ramping of those loads that that's really the only way to go about it and that's not in the best interest of of price responsive loads right uh you want to be able to react to that five minute price print uh in five minutes which is what you'd be able to do as a clr um but anything other than that is it's 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 too much of a risk to take frankly um so you know clr definitely aligns with a lot of incentives for both reliability and and economics um if you really wanted to dive in the details, you could also talk about how that would cause loads to be settled, um, how that would affect their price adders. Um, they would be settled on a five-minute interval rather than a 15-minute interval. Um, for any miners, that would probably be familiar with that topic. Um, so it, it's, it gets into the weeds pretty fast, but there are definitely more benefits for everyone, both sides there. Yeah, it's, uh, like you said, getting into the weeds on on that type of a discussion and uh, I'll be the first one to admit it. It's that that's probably going to be uh, quite a bit over my head. So I, I do appreciate that. Um, and and you know maybe uh we can do like an ERCOT one hundred and one or like these types of programs one hundred and one, and I can go <laughs> you know, go go into that more with you guys. Um, I I am actually just kind of curious. So obviously, uh, Ag, you had like the best explanation of how ERCOT operates. You guys are kind of like the you know, the plane can, you know, controller, you guys are, are watching, you know, but you don't own like the generation, you don't own these other components. What are your guys' thoughts about, and and this is, you know, a little bit tangential, but your thoughts about Bitcoin mining co-locating at sources of generation to help with like generation. Um, have you guys put any thought towards that or do you have any thoughts on that? 
Um, maybe let me clarify your question. So when you say by by help generation, like what 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 do you necessarily uh, so helping you know generation? Um, I guess there's a couple ways to you know that 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 happens is. And maybe it's not, maybe it's, maybe it's not beneficial on, on the ERCOT grid, but, um, you know, just from like a monetization standpoint, if, if, you know, a generator has excess capacity or, um, you know, maybe the, the transmission's really congested. And so the, the price of the transmission is not advantageous. I'm thinking like, solar and wind projects that are, are kind of far away from, from cities. Um, you know, maybe instead they, they buddy up with a Bitcoin miner and that Bitcoin miner becomes a 25, 30, 40% off taker. Um, I was just curious if you guys have started to kind of think through like some of those impacts on, on the, the ERCOT grid system. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I mean, what, what you're essentially yeah. asking is a resource adequacy question, Thank you. right? Um, so that, that's what <laughs> I was working with a lot. Um, and and it, it's a little complicated, right? Because ERCOT doesn't have a ton of visibility into, you know, the specific financing of projects. We, we don't know who has a PPA with who unless that is shared with us by a customer. Um, but from a theoretical standpoint, you know, and, and high level, you know, we are seeing miners co-locate with generation resources and, you know, that spans from wind to solar to even natural gas facilities. So it's a, uh, it's a little bit of all of them. And, and you're right. It, it can theoretically help in a, a couple different scenarios. So if we're talking new projects, um, having an off taker already, you know, signed up through a PPA is a, a good way to help with financing. So maybe you'll see that project go through where it might've fallen out of the queue otherwise um it could theoretically help a distressed asset as well but you know you have to consider these are all just kind of financial helping the generator right so if we're talking about ERCOT's overall system if you have a you know a distressed wind asset out in west texas and it gets a bitcoin miner that helps it generate more revenue stay online longer that's great for that generation resource but it doesn't necessarily fix the underlying problem of that transmission right. going from West Texas to the load pockets, right? So you kind of have to have, you know, you got to follow through, right? It, it has to address the, the main issue and not just uh, symptoms, right? Um, so it, it's, it's very nuanced and situational. If that helps get transmission built, then you could say that's positive. Um, if a new generator gets built in somewhere that's not behind a, a constraint, then that could also be a positive if that generator wasn't going to be built otherwise, right? That would help your resource adequacy problem. But uh, again, that's that's all theoretical, right? It's still way too early to say, at least from ERCOT's perspective, that that's having an impact. So maybe in a couple of years, we'll have a better idea. But you know, right now, it's uh, just an interesting thing okay. we're watching. And I, I, so I appreciate that. And and. Evan, thank you for reframing the question in a much more concise way. Um, <laughs> appreciate that. So, guys, I, I want to just keep a tab on the time again. It's it's uh, it is late afternoon on a Friday. You guys have been very generous with your time. I I would love to maybe ask both of you to to give your perspective or or maybe just paint the picture of like what what would be like the most ideal future state for the ERCOT grid system? And I, I guess with the, the undercurrent of you guys are seeing such rapid increases in large flexible loads, walk me through like what a perfect futuristic ERCOT grid looks like with, with these big flexible loads coming on, you know, just, I guess, do you guys have a, an idea of what that looks like? Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I hate to sound like a broken record, but, you know, coordination is the key to that future grid. Um, and, you know, I think we're, we're at the start of a significant transformation, both with all these loads arriving, but it's leading to discussions about how can we modify the ERCOT protocols and operating guides so that those loads can participate in a way. And it may, you know, it may lead to discussions about, I mean, there's already ongoing discussions about some market redesign steps. And, 
you know, I, I think for us, that, that grid of the future really looks like one in which load becomes a tool that is much closer to being on the level of generation as a way to both, you know, maintain system stability and, and reliability. And, you know, I think probably over the next five to 10 years, we're going to see a lot of changes. We, you know, we have a number of revision requests to existing rules that we've already put out to start to address these topics. I think that's just the start of the dialogue. There'll probably be much more discussion, um, probably additional changes that are needed as we get more experience in this new world we're stepping into. But, you know, the one, the, the grid of the future that keeps us up at night is the, the business as usual scenario where more and more of this load uh, connects and continues to behave as, as it is today with, you know, very little coordination. Um, But, you know, I think if we can get to a, a future in which a lot of this behavior is coordinated and integrated with the other, you know, generators and users of the grid, then that's, that's a benefit for everybody in my mind. So, um, you know, that's the direction that we would like to head. Yeah, uh, and I definitely agree with everything AG said there. And, and you know, I'm going to split it off in a slightly different direction that's more focused on the, the large flexible load aspect of that. And, you know, we really have to see how this is going to play out. But it offers a very kind of interesting, um, you know, coming together of, of, of uh, industries in terms of, electricity and you, know, you can say Bitcoin, hydrogen, carbon capture, what, whatever else has its own independent market, um, you know, economic incentives uh, to essentially, you know, really try to drive down the cost of electricity through efficiency in the market. Um, I, I know we can talk about the Bitcoin <laughs> Twitter space, you know, talking about that, that uh, yeah. you know, buyer of last resort and all that stuff. And, you know, I think that needs to be kind of hammered down and refined, but uh, it has it has underlying theory that could could make sense, right? I mean, if we talk about Bitcoin mining, I'm just going to use that for example to talk to the show as a, an arbitrage opportunity between electricity and whatever revenue you can make from mining Bitcoin for you know the equivalent units. Um, that is something that will decrease as more mining comes onto the system, right? So we would expect that arbitrage to decrease over time. Uh, and so the only way to then mine profitably would be to acquire mm-hmm. cheaper electricity. So um, in a grid saturated with that type of technology, we'd hope that it would uh, increase efficiency of the market and incentivize more efficient, um, you could say wind and solar or any other technology type that could provide reliable, cheap electricity. And I think that could in the long run have a, a very interesting impact on on grid I, I love that thank you both for for sharing the the future grid vision um i'm i'm super super interested in people's perspectives on on how they they think it could and should look so i i, I definitely like both of the things that you guys said and um awesome well guys I, again thank you uh, I always, at the end of the show, give the guests, you know, some room for for a handoff. I want you know, the audience to either be able to get in touch with yourselves if you wish, or you know, maybe ERCOT at large. So please give a give a handoff for the audience uh, and where they can find you guys and and more info. Yeah, um, well, I'll, I'll point you out to two places. So um, you know, should you have questions, uh, feel free to reach out to uh, info at ERCOT dot com. Um, but also, you know, the, the, we have a, a large flexible load task force that I think we've mentioned a couple times, and, um, that can be found on the committee's page of ERCOT's website, which is ERCOT.com. Um, and, you know, that, that's where a lot of these discussions are happening in the public, you know, the public side of the discussion is happening there. So, um, you know, if you're if you're interested in, in following along or, or um, you know, if you're coming to Texas and want to participate, too, I mean, it's uh, uh, that's the place to go. Great. Um, Evan, I don't know if you had anything to add or, or if, if you guys want to just keep it at uh, the, the ERCOT at large 
type of uh, an outreach for for the audience a twitter handle i don't know oh. if you guys want to include if you if you even want to go there with it but are we still calling it twitter these days oh i do <laughs> x, I don't know. x i don't yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah um i mean sure so i mean believe it or not i'm really not on bitcoin twitter i, I try to uh, avoid Good that for you. my own mental health but um so i'm, I'm gonna avoid sharing that handle but uh i'm on LinkedIn under my name, Evan Neal, uh, feel free to connect if you're in the industry. Um, but then like AG said, um, definitely reach out to their sources. Awesome. Well, I, thank you guys again. This, this has been a phenomenal conversation. Great discussion. Really appreciate it. And, uh, you guys take care. Thanks. All right. Thanks. Thanks for having us. 